365 days of adventure and that's kind of how we started that kind of idea that you know we should be able to be any slowly and, and adventuring all year round because a lot of adventure is seen as seasonal and we try to go like right how can we make it sustainable for us as business owners but also how can we keep clients summer autumn winter and spring so it's that kind of thing that the outdoors is so accessible in scotland more so than a lot of places i would say that you know we can definitely do 365 days a year Hi there, and welcome to the Business of Adventure podcast. Conversations with entrepreneurs who have built profitable businesses around their passion for adventure activities. In each episode, we hear their stories, the challenges they have faced along the way, and take away insights to help you start, grow, and manage your business in the outdoor industry. I'm your host, Adam Hill. And in today's episode, I have a conversation with Stevie Boyle of Ocean Vertical, based in East Lothian, next to Edinburgh in Scotland. Stevie has worked in the outdoor industry for over 25 years, starting out following a passion for being outdoors by pursuing outdoor education, before working in recreational outdoor centres to build his experience and skill set. He then moved into youth work, focusing on personal and social development for all with an organisation called Strive Adventure before in 2018 setting up his company, Ocean Vertical. Ocean Vertical runs adventure activities throughout the year, with a focus on helping people make the most of the amazing opportunities that Scotland has to offer, from coastal adventure sports to winter mountaineering. The company now has a core team of four and works with a stable of freelancers from their beautiful base in Dunbar. This was a really interesting conversation in which we talk about having co-founders in an adventure business and how roles and responsibilities are split, how becoming a trainer assessor for other instructors has been important for Stevie's career, the elements of marketing adventure activities, sourcing ethical and environmentally friendly equipment and the challenge of neoprene, and how getting hold of Ocean Vertical's building last year has impacted the business and helped it reach new markets. We recorded this conversation in my home office after Stevie travelled up from Edinburgh to assess me as a co-steering guide the following day. We had both had long days instructing beforehand and Stevie had a long drive to contend with as well, so a massive thanks for him agreeing to have a chat when I hit him with the do you want to be on my podcast question. So without further ado, here is our chat. Enjoy. Welcome to the Business of Adventure podcast. Stevie, thanks for agreeing to be interviewed by me. Uh, and yeah, tell me a bit about, so your company's Ocean Vertical. Ocean Vertical, yeah. So tell me a bit about what you guys do. So down in sunny Slothian, we are an ethical sort of environmental adventure company. And we, in the summer, do co-steering, paddleboarding, surfing, rock climbing, and some expeditions. So in Scotland mostly, so I was in the Cairngorms recently, but we do regular trips up to the far northwest. Uh, out on Mull in April, so a few bits and pieces, mostly sort of like hill walking, mountaineering style yeah. expeditions. And then in the winter, we flip and do sort of winter skills courses, like winter mountain experiences, and sort of like the first steps into proper winter mountaineering as well. Yeah. So it's year round. Year as round. much as we can be, it's year round. And we also have, we're doing our first foreign trip to Nepal oh. this autumn, so November. Are you going? I am going. Oh, that's I'm awesome. Going, yeah. That's exciting. 
That's cool. So uh, de- definitely different from what I do then in that mine's seasonal. So I'm doing April through October and then I've, you know, time off. Yeah. So how do you find that you kind of, I take it you just treat it like a normal job and you have your holiday set out and you take however many weeks holiday a year or how does it work? So, yeah, Is that a bit more flexible? No, it's not. It's, it's not flexible. Yeah. So like, um, I would say that the workload is tough to balance yeah so like you don't get any time off in terms of like because we are trying to keep like 365 days of adventure and that's kind of how we started that kind of idea that you know we should be able to be any slowly and, and adventuring all year round because a lot of adventure is seen as seasonal and we try to go like right how can we make it sustainable for us as business owners but also how can we keep clients um, with anything sort of like what everything that Scotland has to offer and that's like summer autumn winter and spring so it's that kind of thing that the outdoors is so accessible in Scotland more so than a lot of places I would say that you know we can definitely do 365 days a year yeah. um, and getting that balance is is tough in terms of like the time off the time with the family and the commitment to work as well there's a real balance and it's a hard one to get right yeah no absolutely i towards the end of my season i love what i do but towards the end of the season i'm like right i'm ready for a break now you know i've been teaching day in day out so i'm looking forward to november time when i'm like right i've got no more work to do and I can take a break and um, but I guess you just kind of you maybe have that with the end of the water sports season but then you know now I'm gonna have to get my head into mountaineering mode or get myself prepared to climb or whatever the kind of winter yeah. sports are and it is it's hard Flipping the switch. it is a hard uh, and it is a sort of that, that mindset flip and we do have shoulder seasons that are a bit quieter okay. so that transition although it's a, it's a bit of a weird one. So we were co-steering right into December last year. And I can't imagine we won't be doing that this year as well. Although, obviously, we're going to be in Nepal in November for a couple of weeks. I would imagine that back in East Lothian, because while we're away, the guys will still be doing co-steering right the way through. And then that December period where people... And I see it into the back end of November where people have their sights on Christmas and aren't spending as much money as they maybe would be or like in, in different parts of the year. That's kind of like a quieter time. So like yeah. November, December. And then on the... Out of the winter, so we're looking at sort of March, April into the first type of May. We're quite quiet in that period too. So it gives it a little bit of respite, but it's quite hard to switch off from that because like you'll know, like working as we do coaches, instructors, guides, you want to give people the best possible experience every single time. So everybody that comes through the door, whether it's their first time or you know they're a regular customer or client, you really want to be working as best you can so they get as best experience as possible. And that does consume a lot of sort of emotional energy, you know? So I sort of envy you having <laughs> just been like, do you know what? I'm done. Like, I'm gonna. I'm, you won't see me again until May. See you later. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's even just. I look forward to the off season just to have some time to actually catch up with all the admin that I've been like yeah, chasing yeah. the whole season. You know, I'm trying to get there, but I've not quite got on top of it. And then, I mean, I didn't actually do this last off season. I just kind of 
ignored it until the the new that's not entirely true but I ignored it a little bit until closer to the new season but this year I'm like I'm going to keep on top of it keep on top of the social media all off season it's such a yeah. massive like because you're you're pretty much doing it on your own it's yeah. a huge job so Ocean Vertical started with me and Adrian's co-founders yeah. so we, there was always someone else there and then with Molly coming on board as another director and then we took on a member of staff the theory is that everything's spread and I suppose you don't have that sort of backup. Yeah. There's nobody sort of like supporting you really in terms of your business. So yeah, it's a hard, like, you, like you're saying, you have to be the marketer. You have to be the, the instructor guide. You also have to do all of the other admin. Just moving kit around is like yeah. so time consuming. Yeah. You know? So yeah, so it's a, it's a tough job. I think that's a good segue. Earlier you said, you kind of mentioned one of the reasons why you want to do 365 days of adventure apart from promoting that you can do an adventure in Scotland all year round, mm. but also that it helps support the business and sustain the business because yeah. you're able to have an income year round instead of it being seasonal. And I think it's really important, particularly because you have staff and you have co-founders as well. So you have maybe multiple salaries that people need to be getting paid. So how do you split the roles? Like, so what are your roles? Who are your co-founders and what do they do? In, yeah, in absolutely. It's an interesting one. And like you're saying, as soon as you start adding people the necessity to make more money is is there because yeah. if you're like you're saying you're sustaining salaries year round rather than using seasonal staff and all that kind of stuff so it's a tough one and we've got freelancers too so absolutely it's um the more people you have the harder it is to generate that kind of you know the the, the pressure the commercial pressure is massive you know yeah. so ocean verticals was kind of set up around my skill set so I've been working 25 years, well, it's 25 years now, so it wasn't before, it was 20 years. And it was all based on my skill set. So the pressure was on me to do it pretty much exclusively all the delivery. So that's like flipping, like, you know, between co-steering, paddle boarding, doing rock climbing, being out in the mountains and everything like that. We've now got Jacob, who is also, he's our activities manager. So he's doing a lot of the admin in terms of bookings and organization to make sure that people are where they need to be. So either staff or clients. Yeah. Molly does all of the social media marketing and also working with our corporate sort of offer. And then Adrian is doing the facilities. So we've got quite a nice stable building. And he also does all the finance, so everything, all the invoicing, all of the, all of that kind of, the financial management and administration of, of the business, which is a big job. Yeah. And then what, what's your kind of area of responsibility? What's so my area of responsibility is making sure, first of all, my part of the delivery. So yeah. I'm still delivering, I mean, like this morning. So I was in East Lothian this morning, co-steering with clients, and then I'm up here. So what's that, like 200 miles yeah. uh, coming up and then I'm uh, doing co-steering assessment. So I'm doing some of the face-to-face -face client work. I'm also making sure that our quality in terms of our delivery is on point. So training staff, making sure they're there, where we want them to be as a business. Then on top of that, it's like the activity administration. So making sure our license is good and we're all following those procedures, insurance, making sure that our ratios are in line with national governing bodies, safety, 
all health and safety stuff, all the procurement of kit. It's kind of maybe like an operations manager. As yeah, well maybe as, as well yeah. as delivery. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what. Uh, I don't know what. The, so my title is head of adventure. Okay. Yeah. And Jacob's our activities manager. So it's maybe, you know, I don't know. There's a lot. There's a. I, I do quite a lot, and it's quite varied. Yeah. So quite a lot of face to face, and then a lot of the health and safety stuff that goes on with an adventure company yeah and so i want to get to back to talking a little bit about your partners and how you kind of came to meet your partners okay and you know how you chose or how your partners chose you or how that came about Mm -hmm. and but before that i think it would be kind of beneficial to go a bit back into your history of like what you did before ocean vertical and how you ended up getting to the point where you were ready to kind of co-found or found your own business um, so how, how did you get your start in the kind of outdoor industry? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So it takes me back to, I have to start school basically. Okay. So I wasn't an academic and um, I was in some ways, but other ways I didn't have much interest really. A lot of the things I was interested in was all about visual communications. So art and design, graphic communication, that kind of stuff is the thing that engaged me the most at school. And yeah, I, did some physics, I did some like maths and English and things like that, but it didn't really, I knew I had to do it, I kind of just played the game on that stuff, because it's like, you need those exams, so I did the very bare minimum in terms of that stuff. Um, But actually, I was always going outdoors to sort of, uh, what's the right word, maybe to relax, or I would always find myself sort of in, like even when I was training for rugby, I used to run on rocks like I would run down the beach but I'd also run on rocks like down by the coastline and things like that I'd always wanted to climb things so it's always been sort of like a passion of mine always I would always find myself in wild places just as a kid to hang out and through that and a particular teacher at school he's a biology teacher a science teacher and uh, he ran a regular trip to Nethy Bridge in, in Cairngorms so I had heard about that and he was like, you should come along, it's fun, all that kind of stuff. And I did really enjoy it. And I went back year after year after year. And one year he just made a really offhand sort of comment. He was like, you know, people do this for a living. And I was like, what are you talking about? And we went, we were actually walking past Glenmore Lodge at the time. And he was like, yeah, in there, they do mountaineering, they do kayaking, they do all this stuff. I never really thought about it until I was looking at exiting school in sixth year. And I kind of had a choice of doing art-based stuff. Like, I don't know what it would have been. It was quite, I'm quite interested in fashion and sort of pattern design and all that kind of stuff. But then there was also the opportunity to do an outdoor ed course at what was Telford College at the time. And for whatever reason, I chose to do that. Maybe it was because I probably couldn't have faced like another four years in another academic institution and thinking that a really practical course for a short amount of time with the prospects of jobs after and going straight into work sealed the deal basically. So I spent a year at Telford College and got a really broad base of qualifications, but like a low level and then went straight into big residential outdoor centres. And I enjoyed that process of the big, sort of busy outdoor centres, like building rapport with people quickly, and then doing quite adventurous, fun stuff with kids. So it was like, a lot of it was transitions, like primary seven transition stuff. 
so that was that and you know I worked my way through and I always had goals like I want to win a contract it was all seasonal and I was like well seasonal is okay but what is it that I need to do to get a full-time job doing this so then I sort of like got a full-time job working for the same company and just kind of built up qualification base and then I got to a point where I was like I understood that what the power of outdoor education and what is possible in terms of like taking people on adventures and pushing themselves and that personal and social development aspect of it and decided that the big residential outdoor centers probably wasn't for me and I got into youth work and I was really lucky that I landed an awesome job with a charity that was small and they shared the same values as me about developing people and using volunteering using adventure to do personal and social development. And I was able to build up a project from pretty much from scratch. And I spent 15 years there de de developing my own skill set, but also doing transformational programs with young people. And it was, it was really cool. Awesome. Was that, so was that Strive? That was what Strive. So it started as Mobex East Lothian. Okay. And then through a series of sort of rebranding, it became Strive Adventure. Okay. But that was all the same organization. It just had a rebrand as Strive. Okay. Um, and then unfortunately, in sort of, and it was one of those things where it was like, because of the nature of funding, we had sort of weathered a few big troughs. So Outdoor Red, for whatever reason, goes in and out of policy and wet fashion and things like that. And everyone knows the value of outdoor education. Everyone does. But the funding goes through peaks and troughs. Yeah. And whoever's got the purse strings all decides, you know, where, where the money goes. And there might be a need somewhere else. And, you know, then outdoor ed education will become popular again and money will go into it. And we had weathered a few big, deep troughs. And we'd had to change up how we did things, looked at employability using the same, the same sort of principles we had done. And then funding sort of dried up. And I had already made the sort of decision to transition out of youth work. Oh, we were just talking, I'm 43 now. So we're talking about around 2018. So I was in my late 30s. And probably the kind of young people that I was delivering to most were starting to, to sort of like, the relationships weren't as easy to form because I looked like an old dude with a beard. So rather than sort of like a young guy sort of doing things, it was a bit more relatable. But then sort of like you have kids and you've got a house and a mortgage and stuff. And your ability to make these connections with kids and young people becomes a little bit more difficult. So I, was, I understood that was happening and I wanted to transition out of that before it became a problem. So that's when Ocean Bio was kind of toying with the idea of my own business and things like that and that's kind of where Ocean Burke was created. I met Adrian in I think it was like 2014 or 2015 but then it was a few years beyond that and that's a different story about we met he won a competition to go co-steering and that's the first time we met and there was a few years where we had met but weren't doing anything together and then I met him again at a CrossFit gym down in East Lothian and it's outdoors, a guy called Lawson sort of created that and it's all outdoors, it's awesome, it's really good, good vibe and things like that. 
and I said hello to Avery and I was like, you know, I'm doing, I'm going through the process of getting these qualifications. If you ever want to come out, just let me know. And that's how the relationship started. That's how the friendship started. So we would just chat, go up into the mountains, spend days and days sort of in the mountains. A lot of the stuff was in the winter as well, some summer mountaineering things. And there was just through a series of conversations in the car about what a outdoor business would potentially look like and how we would create it. And then Ocean Vertical was created in 2018. Really? Yeah, so there's quite a lot. I've got a lot of questions um, um, there. But you were mentioning Strive. Uh, and that's so the reason I know about Strive Adventure is because that's when I first met you. I think it would have been 2017. Yeah, probably. Sure. Yeah. And you're a trainer assessor for ASI for yeah. paddleboard instructing, uh, amongst other things. Uh, I think you're a trainer assessor for yeah, yeah. lifeguarding. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, steering. There's a story about the SLSGB, but yeah, I'm still an assessor for the Academy of Surf Instructors, yeah. paddleboarding. Yeah, and that's how we yeah so that's how I met when I first got my qualification. And that happened at Strive Adventure. And so I did want to ask a bit about, uh, you're quite highly qualified in terms of the different things that you can teach instructors to instruct. So you can teach, we're away to do a co-steering assessment tomorrow. We've done a course about co-steering in October last year. Um, you Are you a trainer assessor for Beach Life Garden? Also, so it used to be. Used to be. Like, okay. So I'm a former Surf Lifesaving Great Britain trainer assessor, but in 2020, it was hard to do things and I sort of fell off the, I basically didn't do enough courses or CBD during that year. It was like, I was hustling, I was yeah. doing other stuff and my qualification right now, during no. 2020, which, you know, it's harsh, but yeah. it's whatever. Yeah, it's what it is. So, so in your career in outdoor instructing, how important to your career has it been to instruct other instructors and not necessarily customers or clients. Oh, yeah. So I suppose that's only really happened towards, not the, well, I was going to say the end of my career, but it had taken a long time to get to that point. And I always saw, so I've always been this sort of like, it's always seen as derogatory being a jack of all trades and it's like master of nothing, but it's like- A generalist. Yeah, yeah, sort of like, so I've always done that, but I've gotten to the point now where because I've been doing all of those things for so long, I'm actually I'm good at at a broad range of things. And then things started to happen where, like I was quite an early adopter of paddleboarding and then going through, and I didn't rush into the qualification because I don't like that. I saw the commercial opportunity to do paddleboarding, but I spent two years paddleboarding before I went for the qualification, just to make sure that everyone was there, keeping an eye on things, because I was seeing people going for the qualifications of like, well, okay, that's fair enough. But I wanted to make sure that when I was an instructor of anything, that my competency is is really quite high and keep that up. And because of that, and because of, at that point, I was looking for, like, because I'd been there dealing with the ASI and trying to get them to come and do the workshop that I took part in, the first one, and then, doing sort of water safety and rescue, then other people were saying like, can you get in touch with the ASI and sort out this, that and the next thing. And then talking to Tanya, who is still the CEO of the ASI, sort of saying like, what's the pathway? How do I get from just an instructor to a trainer assessor and can I run workshops and what would that process look like? So it's asking questions is how that happened. 
and then through time and building a relationship and obviously the credibility of having different sort of like qualifications, a trainer and assessor and things like that, then they were able to be like, well, this guy's serious and we can bring him on board and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And it's been awesome. Yeah. So now I'm doing things down in Hartlepool. Um, I've done some other things down in Cheshire and run regular workshops in Scotland now as well. So yeah. it's awesome. And it's then, good fun. And but the question was like, how important how is, yeah. is it to your career? Yeah, so it's important to me in terms of variety, I think. Yeah. So I think in terms of the amount of work that I do, it needs to be very, it needs to keep you on my toes. So working at the very, you'll know yourself, when you're working at like beginner sort of stuff, you're probably working like 30% of what you're capable of. And when you have to justify your position on things like an instructor who's been instructing for a long time will ask you a question about what something they either don't understand or don't agree with or you have to then justify your position and that keeps you on your toes and it really makes your practice better so that learning experience like through a workshop is like i'm not a finished article but i can say why i do things and I can position myself in other places to say, okay, is, is what am I doing? That reflective practice. Is everything that I'm doing like legit? Because when f questions are filled by people who are either just inquisitive or don't agree, you need to back up your position. And that then, you might still be working physically at 30%, but actually it's a heightened mental sort of game, isn't it? So it's like your theory and your practice need to be a much higher level. So that's what pushes me into those kind of places. And it's so, so do you mean through kind of instructing other instructors or people who are perhaps like beyond like the beginner level of whatever activity it is, through having to instruct them and kind of answer questions that they ask, that makes you kind of reflect on your own kind of method of instructing and helps you improve yourself as an instructor yeah, for yeah. clients as well. Exactly right. Yeah, the benefit is, is definitely the, the people who are coming to you for maybe the first time it really does benefit them yeah. and but yeah it's about personal growth as well i never i don't think i could ever be like that's me finished i don't need to learn anymore yeah i think that would be a horrible position yeah. to be in you know where you're sort of like close to that kind of learning because yeah. every time i go out i'd learn something you know i yeah. see something that i've never seen before like just the environments we work in and i always say this during instructor workshops co-steering and paddle boarding and when I used to do the surf lifesaving stuff, is like, if someone doesn't do what you think you've asked them to do, it's kind of on the instructor, because you've not communicated yourself properly to them. So it's like your communication skills are a reflection of how they perform. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we don't get it right, and sometimes we do. So that's like, I enjoy that process. That's a really interesting way to th think about that. So it reminded me of something that happened last season. I had a girl working for me on a freelance basis, delivering some paddleboard lessons. So she got her qualification. She's quite a personable person. She, she was doing well, you know, nice person. But she maybe wasn't particularly confident or maybe not the best communicator in terms of communicating to clients. Maybe that's not particularly fair. Maybe more what I want to say is that she didn't really have the switch where when things started to look like they were going a little bit wrong and it needed an early intervention and for her to switch from being really friendly to just being a bit more, okay, now you've got to listen to me now. 
now we're going to do this. She didn't have that. And there was one particular occasion where they were paddleboarding Cullen Beach. Like, you know, this wind isn't maybe the best, so stick within the shelter of this break wall. And they didn't. So I'm watching and then I see all the clients getting blown out beyond the break wall and I'm like, what's she doing? And I ended up going in and then we both got them back in and it wasn't a drama in the end. But she said to me, well, I told them not to do that. And I was like, well, I'm sure you did. But I think the issue was more that, the, like, from my point of view, this just looks like a lesson that's got out of control and it should never have got to that point. But from her point of view, well, I told them. And it's maybe just that she's not managed to communicate the it's such to a, the clients what's needed to be done and I'm taking that as a reflection on her performance but yeah. it's, and it's, yeah. it's a really hard game to play and especially on the sea the sea's so dynamic and then you've got the, these beginners who aren't able to control their boards as well as we can yeah. so it's a really hard and I suppose that's why it's like quite mentally it's mentally taxing so you're on the inside risk assessing this whole time and then you need to be looking at your tone, like you're saying. It's like the difference between the me when I'm like, okay, everyone's having fun and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, right, this is when you need to start listening to me. Yeah. And it's that change of tone and it's the change of that that some people early on in their career struggle with. And it's only through those scrapes near misses where you're like, and it's about reflecting on an incident. So like looking at incidents of even minute consequence is super important in terms of people's practice. And we can do that in a really like positive way, but sometimes it can be quite a negative thing. So like you're saying, it's like, it looks like it's something that's gone out of control. And ultimately it was something that went out of control, but it's like, how can we stop that from happening? But how can we go like, okay, so this happened. Let's look how it happened. And then what are we going to learn from that process? And that reflective practice, that review on incidents is a super important part of what we do. And definitely as a business, um, it's not, and not happening, it would be a perfect world, but learning from it is more yeah. important, you know? And I think some people who are coming into things early, who don't have a coaching background. And I think that's one of the things that the, when I was at college was one of the things that was really Dave Cavers, who's unfortunately dead now. He's a great guy. His philosophy was more about the soft skills and coaching and coaching styles and experience and all that kind of stuff. So that was actually the foundation and then the qualifications sit on top of that. Yeah. Whereas an awful lot of the time, unfortunately, people feel pressured to get the qualification and then they kind of have to find how to be a coach and an instructor on top of that. And it's a hard game, it really is. That's a, that's a really interesting point. And so it kind of brings me away from where I wanted to go, but I think it's, it's good to kind of pull that thread a little bit. Um, so when you're looking at freelancers, and you're trying to, you know, pick, hire a good freelancer for Ocean Vertical. Would you hire for like soft skills first and kind of personality first? Like this person is a suitable coach, perhaps even before they've got their qualifications. Or yeah. how would you? It's, you know? I would say it's a balance, first of all. I would say for Ocean Vertical, the person is the most important thing because you can train and qualify 
well, I'm in a position where I can train and qualify yeah. somebody who I think is a good fit. Yeah. So they have the soft skill. What in a perfect world, what we have is someone who's very competent and socially competent as well. So their technical ability is awesome, and then their social ability is even better. So the thing that I noticed the most when I was working in big outdoor centres was there were some really highly competent people that couldn't hold a conversation except about the discipline that they were interested in. So they were kayakers and that's all they talked about. And that's all they could talk about. They couldn't talk about sort of like, I'm not talking about chatting about football, I'm talking about holding conversations without then reverting to like what climb they're on and the number four nut placement and all that kind of stuff. It's like, wow, that's pretty sort of like niche conversations. And for most people, it's just completely on a different dimension to where they're at in terms of the client turning up on the session and doing that or what, you know? Um, yeah, that ability to make a connection. Yeah, and, like, exactly. A rapport. A rapport that rapport is super yeah. important. And doing it early to build confidence as a leader, so people want to be, they're not like thinking about, oh, wait a minute, is, am I going to be safe doing this? Yeah. So it's like building that rapport straight away is, is, you know, it's tough. So in a perfect world, I would want someone with three really quality like uh, like a frozen vertical i want a co-steering guide i want a paddleboarder and i want a like either a mountaineer a rock climber or a surf instructor and that is a few and far between so i would prefer to have a stable of freelancers that we use the same people regularly rather than have to be like ah Jimmy's got like a rock climbing qualification. We can use him one day a month. And then Susan, we're gonna, she's a surfer, so we're gonna use her like again, three days a month. I'd rather have like, I don't know, let's use Joanna as an example, where she is competent in the water. She's not quite a surf coach yet, but she's done a bit of paddle boarding. She's a really competent paddle boarder, but she's like ready to be a co-steering guide. So I'd rather have that, have her in as an assistant and then she's great with the clients and then we've got the opportunity for her to then be like well you're going to start off co-steering and you're going to build up a skill set there you're going to look after people you're going to have loads of training loads of feedback on how you're doing and then we'll look at the other qualifications and then that's kind of how we prefer to do things yeah i think that's a good way of going about it so going back to so you used to be working youth work yeah so I think it's quite interesting that you've had a long career in kind of youth work in the outdoors. Um, so to then go to start your company, Ocean Vertical, just now, as far as I can tell, Ocean Vertical's much more positioned towards adults than it is to you know kids or you know, teenagers. It seems to be more positioned towards adults. It's maybe more of a premium offering and you're kind of selling adventure to adults. So was that a very conscious decision, given what you said? I thought it was really interesting what you said earlier about you kind of realised that as you got older, it was becoming harder for kids to relate to you because, you know, you're a, f- a few more <laughs> yeah, yeah. few more steps away from where they're at yeah, in life. Yeah, the reality you know? is very different to the yeah. one that I was, yeah. So was that a very conscious decision then when Ocean Vertical was starting that you really wanted to make a big change from the kind of not so much client base, but like who you were dealing with in youth work to who you were going to be dealing with, with Ocean Vertical. Yeah, so kind of, but also about what the growing trends were on adventure. So, and this is where we kind of look at marketing and sort of profiling people and all that kind of stuff. 
And then what people value as well. So the best way to do it is flip who we're not marketing to, but we do have male clients. So we're not really marketing to male clients because I'm gonna to be totally general and rude about men. Men tend to want to self-teach, go out and buy the kit themselves, and just like sort of blunt force trauma, using a bit of stubbornness and try and get to a situation where they're competent. And so you're bringing to mind someone buying a shortboard, just persevering, yes. you know, learning to surf on a shortboard. Exactly, yeah. so the, the, because it, they went into the shop, probably didn't take too much advice, or someone, a sales assistant was there with no real surfing knowledge and be like, yeah, that's the surfboard you want, on you go. That's 500 quid, just paying it, see you later. Do you want a wetsuit as well? That's fine, we'll give you this wetsuit, it's got a hood on it, see you later. Because the person went in probably like single-minded about that's the board I want. I've seen someone surfing, yeah. that, that's the board <laughs> I want. Um, yeah, so, and I have to hold my hand up and say, I've learned sport like that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's just the way it is. And whereas our main client, not all of them, because men, there are men out there who value coaching or being like, oh, wait a minute, my skill set's not quite where I'm at. What is going on? Oh, I probably need some coaching because maybe they've had some coaching before and understand the process and aren't intimidated by it. And I think that's sometimes about why men don't like going to see a professional because they're kind of like, they admit defeat or, or something like that. I don't know what the psychology is. I can only comment on myself that when I have been coached, my skill level has just skyrocketed, yeah. you know? And it's like such a profound and kind of easy process if you let yourself go to it. Anyway, women tend to, and again, generally, tend to value the skill set of someone who's more competent and then can deliver a safe, friendly activity, you know? So they feel safe, they feel looked after, they understand the benefits of having a high quality coach or instructor show them how to do something. Yeah. So would you say then you're kind of marketing, it's maybe not your like main area of responsibility, but generally your marketing in Ocean Vertical is more aimed towards women as a kind of target market? Yeah, we try not, so we don't, we're not like women only groups. And yeah, things sure. Like that. Yeah. But because when me and Adrian were talking about it, like Adrian didn't, like when I was saying to him, this is the people who are gonna buy our offer. He was kind of not resistant to it, but surprised I would say that. And then yeah. I said to him with like, what well, we've just talked about, when was the last time you paid for a sports coach? Like, when did you ever do that? He's like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> so yeah, it's not sort of like, it isn't, it isn't, because like I said, our male clients are like, and talking again about sort of these general marketing and branding rules, when you have men turning up for your product, they are super brand loyal. They love what you do, they invest in it, and they love it. And they will come back again and again and again and again. So that's one of the great things about male clients. If you can harness those male clients, they're super loyal. So we try not to just go like, this is women only kind of stuff because it's really often, even for some women, they don't want to be involved in that kind of space. So it's quite a hard balance between knowing that a bulk of our business is female, but also not being off-putting to people who might. It is complicated. Yeah. And I think we're always trying to balance that to make it not 
so it's really female focused but also not making it really masculine to put off other people and we do suffer a little bit from that the hero pose stuff the visuals of the heroes standing on mountains and it's more about the how we really do things which is about a nurturing coaching process that is taking people in a really supportive way and moving them through their own journey at whatever speed they need to yeah. so we suffer a little bit from that the hero posters of like people on mountaintops and the really powerful visual images of paddle borders in stunning environments um, and trying to make it as accessible as possible and not being off-putting yeah. to people who are genuinely nervous about they have a desire to do these awesome activities but they you know we want people to picture themselves in those photographs rather than being like oh i could never do that because it seems unattainable like those hero images do you know what i mean yeah that's a really really good point uh, something i've never thought about before is so in my marketing a lot of it's you know smiling faces but we aren't offering activities like you know climbing a mountain so I guess it's like how to translate being at the top of the mountain, which is somewhere where maybe your clients want, want to yeah, be. want to be, yeah. Uh, but like how to make that through imagery seem accessible to them yeah. without like excluding them or putting them off. So yeah, that's an interesting point. I never thought and about we, that. We yeah. talk a lot about our visual identity. So yeah. But so, you can you can tell that by like, it's well put together. Like the social media and branding it is like clearly it's not just randomly put together. There's clearly some strategy and planning that's went to it. So it's all quite, you know, cohesive is the word I'm looking Yeah, for. yeah. And we always check when something is off brand. So not cutting corners in terms of safety, but making things easier for ourselves. Sometimes we'll be like, is that, is what we're doing on brand? And, and it's really important that we keep, like you're saying, there's a theme and it's like, it needs to be ocean vertical. So it's like, is that on brand? And me and uh, Jacob had a conversation about that. And it was about equipment. And it was like, it would be easier not to use. And I can't even remember what it was. And it wasn't to do with safety. It was to do with convenience for us. And I was like, well, actually, that's not on brand. Mm -hmm. That is not the same experience as someone would be getting on a different day just because it makes our life easier. It's not on brand. And he agreed and we were like, right, we're not going to even talk about that. We're going to set out everything exactly the same way and then we're going to deliver the activity as we would do for anybody else. Yeah. So there was a conversation that happened regularly. Yeah, that's interesting. And do you have like a mission statement and kind of like a vision and, and yeah, like define we, values or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, so I couldn't reel them off and maybe we should need to review them if I can't remember them. But I know that we kind of work towards them. So the idea is that, and I was talking to clients about this today, and it's about the benefits of physical and mental health in the outdoors. So using the outdoors is amazing for physical and mental health. But also that idea that we're not doing any harm to the environment. So that idea that the product is not actually co-steering or paddleboarding or surfing or mountaineering. The product is actually the, the spaces we use, the wildernesses we use. So protecting and maintaining the, our office, our product, is forefront for us. So the idea that, like we talked about today, like nesting birds, yeah. it's like people are going to go co-steering, but actually everything that's going on around them is m as much of the experiences as a 
swim or a jump or whatever. So that entire package, that kind of ecology of adventure is super important to us too. So it's like, we can't go into the sea and see, for example, a sea urchin and not be show the clients or, you know, or be like, that's a guillemot or, you know, that's a puffin or, or whatever it might be. So that to us is as important part of the activity as the actual, the paddleboarding that we're doing, the coaching that we're doing, the instruction we're doing. But also on the same part of that is we're trying to balance that with ethics as well. And we got greenwashed a bit and, and I've talked about wetsuits because we're talking about coast mm. So it's like, if we're talking about the local environment being important, then we have to think about the global environment being important. So how are we going to put people in wetsuits that's ethical and environmentally friendly? And we actually thought we had sorted that with limestone-based neoprene. So Yamamoto or Japanese neoprene or limestone neoprene is made out of what I thought was a waste product from the cement sort of concrete industry. And then it's created into rubber which is amazing they can even do that it's like a miracle of chemistry but unfortunately you're still left with this stuff called chloroprene which is actually very damaging to the environment it's even worse for human health and we were steered greenwashed into a position where we started using that as opposed to as opposed to sort of your like traditional neoprene and we're trying to work out how we transition away from chloroprene based neoprene to a plant based but yeah. you know what the expense is like yeah. for and also not only the expense but the durability of like yeah. in terms of environment you could put yourself in a very environmentally friendly wetsuit then put a client into a co-steering environment in that wetsuit and it'd be destroyed in a single session and that is not environmentally friendly but then it's, it's a hard balance. But how much of that responsibility can you put on yourself when the solution, because it's an environmental problem, but it's also a business problem. And oh, you yeah, have usually. to be able to make viable business decisions. So you yeah, can't put all that responsibility on yourself when the solution doesn't exist. Yeah, to a certain extent. But if you're not talking about it, yeah. then you can't be making decisions. So if you're just doing stuff blindly because that is better for business, if you're not acknowledging the issues, then you're part of the problem too. Yeah. So if you're going like, okay, I'm making this decision based on ABC, then that's okay. Because like you're saying, it's not just a compromise. So you're not doing it because of a compromise, you're doing it because the solution doesn't exist. So I'm not gonna put someone in a 600 quid bag going in a wetsuit and have it destroyed on the first session. First of all, that doesn't make any financial sense. Second of all, it doesn't actually make any environmental sense either. So you need to, so when we're talking about ethics and sustainability, it's a really hard balance and I don't like to use the word compromise because sometimes you're right, the solution doesn't actually exist. Yet. It's about yeah. having those conversations. Yeah, so that you're, it's, it's forefront of mind. All the time. Absolutely. And I think sometimes that's the only thing you can do. Yeah. The, like without getting down the environmental rabbit hole, at the moment, it's very hard to navigate it in terms of doing the right thing because you'll go one side it's like this is great and then someone will be like oh yeah but have you thought about this and you're like oh i hadn't even thought about that so it's about navigating and trying to make as good informed decisions as possible and as we all know sometimes the thing that you are shown does not have all the facts attached to it yeah because that again is that's good marketing isn't it so going back to when you were talking about 
we're not selling surfing or co-steering or mountaineering whatever the activity is we're selling something else mm-hmm. and and you said you were kind of selling the environment that these activities take place in uh, so my kind of impression if I was to look at the Ocean Verticals branding would be that you're selling adventure that's what I would, how I would yeah, kind of yeah, characterize yeah. it which I think is quite interest, interesting in contrast to the way that I've positioned Blue Coast which is I would say we're selling like so our mission statement begins with Blue Coast helps people feel good by and then you know the activities we offer so we're more focused on the well-being aspect of it and the kind of physical and mental health but you did mention that something that was important to Ocean Vertical yeah, as well absolutely. so I wondered if there were conversations and we're getting into kind of like the depths of branding now but if there were conversations about like what are we prioritizing in our branding and our messaging? You know, when we're talking about ocean vertical, is it is it adventure or is it you know environmental like sustainability or you know do you think about like how do we communicate the physical and mental health benefits of the activities we offer when you're kind of talking about ocean vertical? Yes, we um, do. We probably not as much as we could. So I sort of like look at it as like an eco adventure is an ecosystem. So. Part of that is the environment you're working in. Part of that is keeping people safe with them understanding how to make good decisions. So like the idea that me and Adrian talked early about creating independent adventures. So it's like in a journey from someone, depending on how much the interaction they need, really what we want is someone to take away enough skills from us so then they can be independent. So then you've got like the skill set, the knowledge and understanding. So that's where the coaching, instructing and good guiding comes in. And so that's part of it. And then it's like all the conversations about being either like advisory service or mentors where it's like, okay, so then you need the skill set also to be able to say to someone, oh, this is a really good X, Y or Z. So there's that sort of adventure as an ecology or holistic approach to what adventure is. So yeah, part of that is how profound effect that being outside has, like physical movement, but also your mental health. So that's another aspect, that's another key part of adventure, isn't it? Pushing yourself, so that personal growth as well. So it's like you're how resilient you can possibly be as well. So again, but that's an aspect of mental health too. But, you know, we talk about that as well, that, you know, and we're starting to do some more personal social development with young people we got some funding from the lottery to do a mental health program so we're going to be doing that too so kind of the youth work is coming back into it slightly but we're in a slightly different position i don't know if that really answered your question but it's kind of like yeah that ecology of adventure so there's so much going on there's so many parts to adventure and we're trying to encapsulate all of it yeah as best we can yeah cool yeah so ocean vertical is based near Edinburgh, Dunbar, um, which is a you know pretty big market or a bigger market than up here anyway. Yeah, you've got more more tourists and more local people, and so for that reason, there's a lot more competitors. You've got more adventure companies in in that area than I have. Kind of surf schools or paddleboard schools up here, for example. Uh, so, what would you say is the main thing that Ocean Vertical does to make it stand out from its competitors? So, this is going to sound like massive ego, but we don't see ourselves as having many competitors. And I think that is one of the things. The other thing that me and Adrian talked about probably today 
and it might have been yesterday or this week, is that we have an abundance mindset. So there is more than enough to go around. I always talk, we were laughing, because it was funny. Someone had been, I don't know, shaken up by something that we were potentially going to do. And I equated it to George Street in Edinburgh only having one clothes shop on it. Mm. So like that would be a bizarre situation, wouldn't it? Yeah. Where you walk into a city centre and it's like, that's the clothes shop, that's the shoe shop, you know? Yeah. Like the old school like butcher baker, candlestick maker and that's, you know, nobody else can do that. Yeah. And so I suppose we have always looked at it like we don't really have competitors. We have people who do similar stuff to us. So it might be a surf school that does paddle boarding and coast steering, or it yeah. might be, a, you know, a canyoning company that also does coast steering and then does some other bits and pieces. So whether that's just ego or not, I don't know. We're not the most expensive. We're not the cheapest, but we try and say, you know, it's a premium service. Our instructors have got decades of experience and it's that kind of stuff where it's like, it's five star every time. And people coming into our building, got the coffee on all the time. You know, it's that part kind of the experience. Of, part of the experience. Our building's amazing. Adrian's like kitted out. And it looks like a, not quite a boutique hotel, but it's got a very sort of style. It's got a, this kind of style to it. And, you know, it's done really well. That was one of the last things I was wanting to ask you was about the building. Because the photos, I've not been there, but the photos of it look amazing. So tell us a bit about it and how it came about. As well. So we, me and Adrian, and started the business with nothing, pretty much. No, my shed, actually. So my shed held <laughs> the Winter Mountaineering kit, yeah. and we were renting boots. So uh, we were talking earlier about how much of a nightmare it is when all of this equipment spills in your living space. Well, that's the reality of it, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And my wife still gives me about how my kit takes over parts of the house and all yeah. that kind of stuff and it's usually like in the winter it's fair enough because in the winter it's dark all the time isn't it so you can't hang something outside so the kit explodes it could be that i'm going out maybe not the next day but the day after so my kit needs to be dry it needs to be sorted out nothing can be in the bag everything's coming out is the first aid kit dry is the like the survival stuff is that all good making sure everything's like all legit making sure my boots are properly dried for the next time they're going out and all that kind of stuff so it's like explodes through the house um but yeah early doors it was like washing drying kit all that kind of stuff was having to be done dry bags but like I was able to contain it into my shed and then very quickly we were able to get hold of a very friendly landowner who is now our it's where our base is so same guy rented us a shipping container on part of his land and it just so happened that the part of land that he put the shipping container on for us had a bit of hard standing and it was in front of an old derelict stables and he had had to do some work on it and then me and Adrian kind of quickly sort of like realized that, you know, dry stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we sort of like open one of the doors and yeah. dry stuff in and we kind of like asked his permission to do it more. And then we noticed there was another bit of the building that wasn't used. So we were like, can we just have that courtyard that was in the back? <laughs> and then it expanded again and again and again. And then eventually it wasn't like a, we have to do this or we're leaving sort of thing. It was a genuine like, if we're going to grow the business, we need to do something big. Yeah. And so for the corporate offers that we do and all that kind of stuff, we needed space, we needed 
a storeroom. We needed the shipping container, which the original shipping container is still there. It's still used. It's still integral to what yeah. we do and how we do things. And we've just managed to expand and do other things. And we've now got changing rooms. But for two years, we had to get changing car parks. Yeah. You know, so now we've got changing rooms. Now we've got toilets. We we had a portaloo for a really long time, almost two years. We had clients like using a portaloo, which has its issues too. Yeah, uh, you do what you do what you're gonna have to do to make the offering work. Yeah. Exactly, and the building like Adrian's done an awesome job. Um, and when did it when did it open? Last April. Okay, cool. So it's just still just over a year. New. Yeah, still, still brand new. Yeah. And have you noticed it's made? So you mentioned that allowed you to expand particularly like the corporate the team building kind of stuff which makes total sense especially when you see an image of the space it looks like a beautiful space so have you noticed it's difficult to measure it's difficult to attribute i think business growth to something like that because oh no it definitely has but but yeah so so and how, why why do, you, ability, why do you say that so how, ability, how do you know so our ability to market yeah the space in itself just say this is what we've got yeah and it's like, you know, like we had a corporate away day with a local business today. I was working with regular clients and the other guys were working with the corporate clients. And without the building, there would be nothing to encourage that kind of business to come to us. Yeah. So it's a big part of the offering. It's yeah. an attractive. And it's got kind of very much out of the ordinary. And there's nobody else with that kind of space. Yeah. So interesting to come to this when we were talking about like how you differentiate yourself from, you know, other similar businesses that's got to be up yeah, there with the, the, the space yeah for sure yeah yeah awesome yeah, I reckon that's a, been a really good chat yeah no thanks very much for no thank you for agreeing to have a chat I think that's been been valuable hopefully the folk listening to it will get, yeah, some, get something away from that yeah absolutely and yeah. sort of have some sort of context to what we're chatting yeah I would definitely recommend having a look at your website and the images of the space as well that's good so what are the links the, uh, yeah, so on the website is oceanvertical.com and Instagram is ocean underscore vertical and then Facebook is OV adventure if you put ocean vertical into yeah. stuff it will pop, like, pop up pretty fast awesome That was Stevie Boyle of Ocean Vertical in Scotland. Thanks again, Stevie, for agreeing to have this chat with me. I would thoroughly recommend that you check out Ocean Vertical's social media and their website to get a bit of a visual representation of some of the things we spoke about in our conversation. I find it inspiring the way that Ocean Vertical has managed to maintain a cohesive brand as they have went about developing their business. And I think that that's quite often what differentiates businesses in our industry or helps the more successful ones stand head and shoulders above the the baseline. While some of that can be put down to being authentic and sharing that authenticity, I think a huge part of it is down to reaching that point of realization when you're no longer talking about just selling the activity you're offering. You're not only thinking about selling someone a paddle in the sea or a climb on a mountain, but you're selling something else. And that could be an idea or a feeling like the idea of adventure as a whole, or the outdoor lifestyle or a feeling of well-being and contentedness. I think that when you start to communicate something that's so universally appealing, you've moved to a level above the baseline sale of an activity. And if you can show that through your marketing and the way you go about doing things, you can not only speak to people on a deeper level, but you can also charge more as well because you aren't selling just a 1.5 hour session with all equipment included, you're selling adventure or feeling good. 
and that's more valuable. Thank you for listening to this episode all the way to the end. I really hope it helps you think about something in your business in a different way. If you have a couple of moments, I would really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast on whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. And if you can leave it a rating or a review, that really helps the podcast reach new listeners as well. If you have a colleague that you think would get something out of the show, it would be awesome if you could share it with them too. And see you in the next one. Cheers.